Good morning and Happy New Year's Eve again. You can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be in Luke 19 verses 1 through 10. You can also find those verses printed in the bulletins that we have in the back. If you are new to Emmanuel, we have been slowly working our way through the Gospel of Luke over the last couple of years. We've taken a couple of breaks along the way. Well, this morning we are picking up where we left off a number of months ago at the beginning of Luke 19. And Lord willing, we will finish the Gospel of Luke sometime this spring. Uh, So please follow along as I start reading in Luke 19, verse 1. He, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd, since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor Lord, and if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that life comes through your word. We pray that you would use your word to bring life to people today. Father, we pray that it would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, that you would use your word to guide us in the way that we should go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, I'm going to begin by telling you two different stories. Two different stories, and I want you to see if you can tell me the big difference between those two stories. There's a few small differences, but I want to see if you can tell me the big difference. So here is the first story. In 2021, a woman in the United States finally returned a library book she had kept for 63 years. It was 23,000 days overdue. She originally borrowed the book from a library in New York City in 1957 when she was just 10 years old. And as a young girl, she was too ashamed to return it when she ended up keeping it longer than it was supposed to be kept. So because of her shame, she just chose to keep the library book instead. But eventually, at age 74, she decided that she needed to make things right. So she mailed the book back to the library along with a check for $500, which more than covered the late fees that she owed. The second story is very similar. Just this year, a woman in England returned a library book that she had kept for 56 years. She had borrowed it as a 14-year-old girl, but for some reason, the story was not clear, She had failed to return it when it was due. After she had ended up keeping it for several years past the due date, she just decided not to return it because she was afraid that she could not afford the late fees. But earlier this year, the libraries in her city in England announced that they were canceling all late fees, no matter how late a book was due, and that they were going to give a prize for the most overdue library book. So she decided that now was finally the time to return the library book that she had held on to for 56 years. So kids, 
What is the big difference between those two stories? Yes, Adeline. That's right. The second lady only returned the book when she found out that there would be no penalty and she might even get a prize. But the first lady returned the book she borrowed along with the money to pay the late fees. Now, which one of those ladies do you think showed any true sorry, sorrow or, or tried to make things right? Well, it was the, the first lady, the one who paid what she owed, the one who returned the book even when no prize was being offered. Now, now look, that's a pretty silly example about a library book. I might have a library book at my home that I've forgotten to return. Who knows? But it is a helpful illustration of what true repentance looks like. Look, we all recognize the difference between someone who voluntarily confesses to stealing something and brings it back and returns it, and someone who is caught by the police and is forced by a court to pay back what they stole. Well, one is showing a genuine sorrow and remorse, but the other is not. Well, friends, Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus is a story, a true story from the life of Jesus that illustrates the nature or the character of true repentance. Now, we're kind of just jumping back into the middle of the book of Luke this morning, but this section of Luke that we are in has been all about the nature of true salvation. That's been what uh, this section of Luke has been all about. So in Luke chapter 18, the chapter just before this one, in verses 9 through 14, Jesus told the parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector who went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee boasted in his own righteousness and thanked God that he was not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. However, that tax collector would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh, the conclusion of the parable is Jesus said that it was the humble tax collector who left the temple forgiven, while the self-righteous Pharisee did not, because it is the humble who will be exalted. In the very next section, Luke 18, verses 18 through 30, Jesus had a conversation with the rich young ruler who came to him and asked how he could inherit eternal life. Well, Jesus told him to sell all of his possessions, everything that he had, and give it to the poor. But the rich young ruler went away saddened because he was very rich, and he was not willing to part with his comfort and his riches to gain eternal life. Well, we see that to find salvation, you must be willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. And then in Luke 18, 35 through 43, Jesus healed a blind man, proving that he is the one who can give not just physical sight, but spiritual sight. The salvation comes when Jesus supernaturally opens our eyes that have been blinded by sin. Salvation is a work of God's grace from beginning to end. Oh, friends, the story of Zacchaeus continues on this theme of salvation. It shows the, the repentance it shows the genuine repentance that must accompany salvation. There can be no true salvation apart from genuine repentance. And as we will see, this, this type of repentance, biblical repentance, genuine repentance, 
Well, it's brought about by the grace of Jesus Christ. So the, the main idea of this story and therefore this sermon this morning is this. The grace of Jesus produces genuine repentance leading to salvation. The grace of Jesus produces genuine repentance leading to salvation. So I have two points to help us understand this well-known story of Zacchaeus today. The first, Jesus seeks. Jesus seeks. We'll see that in verses 1 through 6. And the second, Jesus saves. Verses 7 through 10. You can find that outline in your bulletin as well. So first, Jesus seeks. Our verses this morning open with Jesus passing through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. So for the last several chapters in the book of Luke, actually since chapter 9, Jesus has been slowly making his way to Jerusalem where he knew that he was going to be betrayed and crucified. He's now finally drawing near to Jerusalem. Jericho is only about 30 kilometers away from Jerusalem. And Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is just around the corner. Actually happens later in chapter 19. But before Jesus made it to Jerusalem, he has a divinely ordained encounter with Zacchaeus. In verse 2, we, we learn that Zacchaeus was both rich and a leading tax collector in that region. Now, what you need to understand is both of these things made Zacchaeus an unlikely candidate for salvation, particularly in the minds of Jesus' listeners. Uh, tax collectors were greatly despised by first century Jews. Uh, tax collectors often cheated people and collected more than was required so that they could keep the extra for themselves. So if somebody owed 10 dirhams in taxes, they might collect 12 dirhams in taxes and pocket the extra two dirhams for themselves. It seems that Zacchaeus himself did this since he offered to pay back to people what he had extorted. And so tax collectors were hated because they stole from people. People don't like people who steal from them. But also because they partnered with the Roman authorities who were despised by the Jews. They were an uh, oppressive, occupying force. The Jewish people didn't like them, and they didn't like people who worked for them. So in the minds of Jesus' listeners, Zacchaeus was a great sinner, an unlikely candidate for salvation, perhaps in their minds even beyond salvation. And Zacchaeus was also rich, at least in part because of the money that he had stolen. Now look back at Luke chapter 18, verse 24 for a moment. So immediately after the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus in sorrow because he did not want to give up his riches, Jesus said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, well, then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And friends, as we saw in the story of the rich young ruler, there is nothing inherently wrong with being rich. You can be a Christian and be rich. Those two things are not incompatible. But wealth can be a great barrier to salvation because it tempts you to be self-reliant instead of relying on the Lord. You trust in your riches instead of trusting in the Lord. But friends, whether or not you are rich, we all have barriers to salvation. In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee trusted in his own goodness, that he was good enough on his own. 
Uh, That was his barrier to salvation. It was self-righteousness. But it was the tax collector who humbled himself who found salvation. We all have barriers to salvation. It might be riches. It might be pride. It might be self-righteousness. It might be guilt or shame. It might be just the desire to hold on to some sin that you don't want to give up to follow Jesus. But friends, what we need to see today in the story of Zacchaeus is that Jesus closes the door of salvation to no one. Jesus closes the door of salvation to no one who is willing to give up everything and follow him. Not even a rich tax collector. This is what we see in the story of Zacchaeus. That Jesus' offer of salvation is for all. It is for rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, men and women, young and old. His offer of salvation is for everyone. He opens the door of salvation to all who are willing to humble themselves, turn from their sins, and follow him. Well, due to uh, his wealth and position as a leading tax collector, Zacchaeus was undoubtedly a man who had some prominence in the community, a leading figure in the community. And yet what we find in our verses is that he was eager to see Jesus. Now, usually a a man of importance expects people to want to see him. Rulers invite people to come to their courts. But the situation here is reversed. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. Friends, we find that God was already at work humbling his heart. The problem was that Zacchaeus was a short man, and so he could not see over the large crowds that had assembled to welcome Jesus. It's like a kid who wants to see the parade but can't see over all the adults standing in front of him. And so he ran ahead and climbed up a tree to be able to catch a glimpse of of Jesus. Now, this would have been a fairly shameful thing for Zacchaeus to have done, especially in that culture. It would have certainly been improper for a a man of Zacchaeus' social standing to go climb a tree to see somebody who was passing by. But Zacchaeus did not care. Church, there are no barriers to salvation for those who are willing to humble themselves. Friends, how eager are you to find Jesus? At the end of Luke 18, it was a blind man that wanted to see Jesus. Jesus supernaturally gave him not just physical sight, but he gave him eyes of faith as well. That theme of sight is still present in our verses this morning. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus as well. He ran ahead and climbed a tree so he could see Jesus. But like that blind man from the end of Luke chapter 18, Zacchaeus needed more than to just actually lay his physical eyes on Jesus. He needed more than to to see the figure of Jesus walking by. He needed eyes of faith to see Jesus for who he truly was and who he truly is, the eternal Son of God the Savior of the world, the only one who has the power to forgive sins and to rescue lost sinners. From these first four verses, it seems that Zacchaeus was seeking out Jesus. And he was. We can say accurately that Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus. But what we see in verse 5 is that it was actually Jesus who was seeking out Zacchaeus. Notice that it was Jesus who first spoke to Zacchaeus. 
Jesus begins the conversation with Zacchaeus. It was Jesus who sought him out and singled him out from everyone else in the crowd. Friends, if you bought a ticket to a football match and then one of the players, and maybe Lionel Messi, think of another famous player if you know some football player, or maybe Lionel Messi stopped and looked up into the stands and invited you to come talk with him, to come into the locker room after the game or to go out to, to dinner. Well, you would not say that you sought Lionel Messi out just because you bought a ticket to the game. No, you would say that he sought you out. Well, so it was with Jesus and Zacchaeus. But Jesus had no reason to pay attention to Zacchaeus or know who he was. I mean, there were so many crowds there that Zacchaeus had to climb a tree just to see Jesus. Jesus could have talked to any number of people along that road. And yet he talked to Zacchaeus. He knew who he was. He called him by name. As the divine and eternal Son of God, Jesus did not need to be told his name. He knew his name. As he knows the name of every single person that he will save. But Jesus was seeking out Zacchaeus. It was his intention all along to save Zacchaeus. And notice the attention that he gives to Zacchaeus. We saw in verse 1 that Jesus was simply passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. You might even say that he was going to do more important things. He was on his way to the cross. He was on his way to the triumphal entry. But Jesus interrupted his schedule. He interrupted his agenda to seek out Zacchaeus. Instead of passing through Jericho, he stopped to talk with Zacchaeus. Instead of continuing his journey through Jericho, he says that he is going to stop, and it was necessary for him to stay at the house of Zacchaeus instead. Now look at verse 10 for a moment. We'll come back to this verse a little later. But notice what Jesus' mission on earth was. It was to seek and to save the lost. We thought about this a little bit last week, right? We cannot ascend to God. God seeks us. I mean, he sent his son all the way down to earth to seek us. We are not the ones who seek after God. God is the one who seeks after us. It was necessary for Jesus to stay with Zacchaeus because it was part of Jesus' mission of redemption. It was part of God's plan. Jesus was intentionally seeking Zacchaeus out because God had set aside or predestined Zacchaeus for salvation. This was a divinely ordained encounter. Well, brothers and sisters, I wonder if we are as willing as Jesus to interrupt our schedule for others. I know this can be a struggle for me personally. I can get so consumed by my to-do list, the things that I want to get done or feel like I need to get done, that it is hard for me to make room for unexpected conversations with others. I don't like to be interrupted. I don't like to be sidetracked from what I was planning to, to get accomplished. But brothers and sisters, it is not just Jesus who has divine encounters with others. We do too. It is not just Jesus who has a mission in earth. We do too. To go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost is continuing even today. He sends his people to seek those who are lost. Jesus seeks people through his people. 
Jesus is the one who saves. We don't save. We don't get that part of the mission. But Jesus has called us to go and make disciples of all nations. If we're going to effectively carry out that mission, brothers and sisters, we have to be willing to be inconvenienced, and we have to be willing to be interrupted. We need to be willing to make time for others, even unexpectedly, even when we don't want to. We need to be willing to prioritize other people, even when we had something else that we were planning to do. Maybe something else that even feels a lot more important. We should not just go through our days pursuing our own agenda. Instead, we should be on the, the lookout for those that God has brought into our path and who I, we might be able to engage with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So friends, that should be one takeaway from Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. But the big thing that I do not want you to miss is that God is always the initiator of salvation. God is always the initiator of salvation. It is always God that begins the work of salvation. It is always God that brings people to repentance in faith. It is always God who seeks us, not we who seek God. God is always the initiator of salvation. Friends, we are dead in our sins. If you, before you knew the Lord, you were dead in your sins. God must give spiritual life to us before we would ever turn to him in repentance and faith. It is the grace of Jesus that produces genuine repentance leading to salvation. So what I want you to see in this story of Zacchaeus is that everything that follows in these verses is a response to Jesus. Zacchaeus responded to the compassion and grace that Jesus showed to him as he was passing by. Jesus started the relationship with Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus then responded to Jesus. Jesus called Zacchaeus, and then Zacchaeus responded to Jesus with joy. Jesus began the work of salvation in Zacchaeus' heart, and Zacchaeus then responded in repentance and faith. Friends, that brings us to the second point of the sermon. Jesus saves we see that Zacchaeus was overjoyed that Jesus wanted to go to his house. But not everyone else that was present that day was so happy with Jesus' decision. So look again at verse 7. The crowds complained that Jesus had gone to stay with a sinful man, a tax collector, someone who in their mind was probably even a thief. Now perhaps they were jealous of the attention that Zacchaeus received. Maybe it was the attention that they wanted to receive. I believe the greater problem was that they were self-righteous. They viewed themselves as worthy of Jesus' attention. They were the ones that deserved to have Jesus come over for dinners. Oh, Zacchaeus, though, he was unworthy of Jesus' attention. He was a sinner, a tax collector, a thief. Of course, we've seen this attitude before in Luke's Gospel. We saw it in chapter 18 in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And if you go all the way back to Luke chapter 5, well, Jesus called Levi, another tax collector, to be one of his disciples. Well, this is what happened after Jesus called Levi, the tax collector, to be one of his disciples. We read about it in Luke chapter 5, verse 29 through 32. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for Jesus at his house. 
what Jesus calls Levi. Levi welcomes Jesus with joy and hosts a grand banquet for Jesus. Now, there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them at this banquet. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let me read those last two verses again. It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Friends, the irony of Jesus' statement there is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are sinners. There is no one who is not a sinner other than Jesus himself. None are righteous. We are all unworthy. The sick aren't the ones who are worse off than everyone else. The sick are simply those who recognize that they are sinners. Jesus came to seek and to save those who humble themselves and who admit that they are sick. He did not come for those who think they need no Savior, but only those who recognize their need of him. Friends, we know in our own lives that doctors can only help patients who think that they are sick. The doctor cannot help the patient who never visits. The person's not even a patient if, it doesn't visit, if he doesn't visit the doctor. Uh, the doctor cannot help the person who visits but then does not believe the doctor when the doctor tells him that he has cancer. The doctor can only help those who visit and only can help those who see their need of the doctor. So it is with Jesus. Friends, when you view yourself as worthy of God's favor and his salvation, you will always find ways to see other people as unworthy of Jesus' grace and his salvation. If it is your own goodness that you're looking to, your own righteousness that you're looking to, your own good works that you are looking to to justify yourself, well, the only way that you can truly justify yourself is by looking down on others and by finding ways to think of yourself as better than them, more worthy of God's grace, because that's the only way that God is going to favor you. So you, like the crowds, will find ways to complain about others and gossip about others, to set yourself on a pedestal uh, above others. Brothers and sisters, just take a moment to ask yourself, how would you react if you found out a fellow Christian once struggled with sexual immorality? How would you react if you found out one of your fellow church members once struggled with drunkenness? How would you react if uh, you found out a fellow Christian was still tempted by same-sex attraction, even though they fought hard against it and never gave in to temptation? Brothers and sisters, do you view the temptations and sins of others as worse than your own and more shameful than your own? Are the sins of others in your mind almost always worse than your own sins? Do you view yourself as maybe just a little bit more worthy of God's favor in his salvation than these other people over here? Friends, if so, take the log out of your own eye and be warned that Jesus came not for those who think they are well. He came for the sick. 
in the face of the complaints and accusation of the crowds that he was a great sinner. Zacchaeus did not defend himself. That would be our temptation, I think. The crowd is accusing Zacchaeus of being a great sinner. Jesus shouldn't even go to his house. I think we would be tempted to grow angry at the crowds in that situation. But Zacchaeus agreed with the crowd. He agreed with the crowd. He didn't argue against the crowd. And we know this because in response to Jesus' grace and in the face of the crowd's complaints, what did Zacchaeus do? He didn't defend himself. He didn't grow angry. He repented. Look at verse 8. I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I've extorted or stolen anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Uh, kids, which of the two library ladies does that sound like? I think it sounds like the first one who paid the money back. Friends, Zacchaeus' repentance teaches us a number of things about what true repentance looks like. So I want to spend a few minutes examining Zacchaeus' example of repentance from these verses. The first thing that we see about Zacchaeus' repentance is that he was willing to bear the cost of his sin. Zacchaeus was willing to bear the cost of his sin. He did not hide himself for his sin. In the light of Jesus' grace and mercy to him, Zacchaeus clearly saw his sin. He saw that he was a sinner. He recognized that he was sick. And he honestly admitted his sin. And it seems like Zacchaeus may have even made his confession in front of the crowds that were there. It's not clear. Maybe they were back at Zacchaeus' house. But it seems like it may have happened before Zacchaeus ever went back to his house. So Zacchaeus was willing to bear the shame of his sin in front of others. But he was also willing to bear the cost of his sin. He was willing to, to pay people back for the wrong he had done. No court was forcing Zacchaeus to, to pay back what he had stolen. Uh, no parent. This was not like a parent demanding that their child apologize. No, Zacchaeus voluntarily offered to pay back what he had stolen with interest. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Worldly grief produces death. Friends, worldly grief does not have any true sorrow over sin. It is simply sorrow over experiencing the consequences of one's sin. It is a sorrow that one got caught, that one feels guilty, that one has shame. But godly grief, grief that leads to salvation, is a deep sorrow that in your sin you have harmed God in others. It is a sorrow over the sin itself. And godly sorrow is demonstrated by a willingness to make things right. It is shown by a willingness to accept the consequences of your sin, no matter what they may be. Friends, the woman who only returned her book when she knew she would face no consequences, well, she did not really demonstrate a sorrow for keeping that library book for so many years. She was only willing to return it when she knew she would bear no costs. Pastor Charles Spurgeon once said this, if I hate sin because of the punishment, I have not repented of sin. I merely regret that God is just. 
But if I can see sin as an offense against Jesus Christ and loathe myself because I have wounded him, then I have a true brokenness of heart. Friend Zacchaeus had godly sorrow. He was willing to bear the cost of his sin. He did not regret that God was just. He did not regret the consequences. He was willing to endure the shame and the cost of his sin and to make things right. The second thing that we see about Zacchaeus' repentance is that it was accompanied by faith. Genuine repentance, biblical repentance, the godly sorrow that leads to salvation is always accompanied by faith. This is what we see with Zacchaeus. Notice that Zacchaeus calls Jesus Lord or or Master. He recognized Jesus' authority and he was willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. He willingly and voluntarily gave half of his possessions to the poor. And I am sure he would have given everything to the poor if Jesus had made the same demand of him that he made to the rich young ruler. The money, the wealth that Zacchaeus once sought the money he was once willing to steal, he was now willing to to give freely to follow Jesus. Zacchaeus had a new Lord and a new master. He had placed his faith in Jesus. It was shown in his actions. This is how theologian Tom Schreiner puts it. The story of Zacchaeus teaches us that it is not enough. It is not enough simply to say, I am saved. I believe in Jesus now. I belong to him. Instead, we must respond as Zacchaeus did. We can compare Zacchaeus' response to that of the rich ruler. The rich ruler did not give up his money because it was his God, his idol. On the other hand, God did the impossible work of transforming Zacchaeus' heart so that he was willing to give half his money to the poor. We also learn from these two narratives that we are not talking about percentages. In other words, it's not all that important that the rich young ruler was called to give up everything and Zacchaeus only gave up half. We're not talking about percentages. Jesus asked the rich ruler to sell all his money, while Zacchaeus pleased the Lord by giving half his money to the poor. There is no fixed amount we must give to please the Lord. What God wants is our lives and hearts. What God wants is our lives and hearts. He wants us to find our joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in him. Jesus became the treasure for Zacchaeus. Jesus became the treasure for Zacchaeus. And friends, if you are to be saved, Jesus must become your treasure as well. Jesus cannot be your savior unless he is also your Lord and your master in your treasure. Friends, Jesus does not just demand that you say, sorry, I believe in you now. No, he demands that you submit to him and follow him in joyful obedience. He demands your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Friends, he demands your life. Therefore, genuine repentance is shown by its fruit. Jesus demands your life. And so genuine repentance is shown by a changed life, a new direction. It's shown by voluntarily accepting the consequences of your sin and seeking to make restitution. Not just at one moment in time, but over the course of your life. Your life is to be marked by repentance. 
genuine repentance is shown by a willingness and an effort to give up your sin and to follow Jesus instead. As Jesus invites you to come as you are to him, whether you are a sinner, a tax collector, a thief, or a murderer. Jesus invites you to come as you are, but you must not stay as you are. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. you don't have your Bibles with you, I invite you to bring them or come talk to me. If you don't have a Bible, we'll try to get you one. In Ephesians 4, as well as other places in the New Testament, we see that the Christian life is to be marked by putting off sin, putting off unrighteousness, and putting on righteousness in obedience to Jesus. Putting off, putting on. Put off, put on. That is to mark the Christian life. So so look with me at Ephesians 4, starting in verse 22. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. Take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands, so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Notice that pattern. Put off the former way of life. Put on the new self. Put off lying. Put on truth-telling. Put off stealing, put on doing honest work and being generous. Jesus does not just call us to stop sinning, he calls us to live righteously. Put off, put on. That is the nature of true faith and genuine repentance. That is the evidence of true salvation. Well, hearing Zacchaeus confess and repent... Jesus proclaimed, today salvation has come to this house because he, too, is a son of Abraham. Uh, With that statement, Jesus made it clear that salvation does not come through your own righteousness or your own goodness, but only by repentance and faith in him. What makes someone a child of God, a child of Abraham, is not where they were born or who they were born to, but genuine faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. Friends, no one is born a Christian. Zacchaeus, a Jew. He was not born a child of God. You are not a Christian just because you were born in the Christian region of your country. You are not a Christian just because you have Christian parents. You are not a Christian just because you've gone to church your whole life. You are not a Christian just because you prayed a sinner's prayer as a child. doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but just doing that does not make one a Christian. No, salvation comes through genuine repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. True salvation is shown by its fruit. Friends, make no mistake, though. Zacchaeus' salvation was not a salvation by works. His repentance came as a response to Jesus' grace. Jesus was the creator and the author of his salvation, just like he is for every Christian. 
In order for anyone to repent and believe, Jesus must open their blind eyes and give them new hearts and bring spiritual life to those who are dead in their sin. It is only once he has first done this that anyone can or will respond to him in genuine repentance and faith. Zacchaeus' repentance was a response to Jesus' grace. It is the grace of Jesus that produces genuine repentance leading to salvation. Look again at verse 10. What is it that Jesus came to do? He came to seek and to save the lost. But friends, this includes the rich and the poor. It includes the Indian and the Australian. It includes the teacher and the TV star. It includes the powerful and the weak. It includes the respectable and the shameful. They just must share one thing in common. They must humble themselves, repent of their sins, and place their faith in Jesus Christ. They must confess that Jesus is Lord and abandon their sin. Friends, this is how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. Friends, Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and to save even the worst of sinners. If you are here and not a Christian, I know that salvation can come to you today as well. No matter what you have done, no matter what's in your past, no matter what you might be trusting in today, whether it's riches or your own goodness, salvation can be yours today if you, like Zacchaeus, turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus. Place your faith in the Jesus who lived for you, who died for you, and who was raised that you might be forgiven of your sins. Friends, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came from heaven to earth to live the perfect life, to die the death that you deserve to die on the cross, and to be raised again. And salvation can be yours if you will humble yourselves before that Jesus. Confess that he is Lord and Savior. And church, the evidence of your salvation, the evidence of your repentance is whether you walk in newness of life. The evidence of genuine repentance leading to salvation is whether you put off your sin, whether you put on righteousness. And that is because every sinner that Jesus saves Every sinner that Jesus saves, he transforms by his grace. And what did Paul say in 1 Timothy? He used to be a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But the grace of our Lord overflowed to him along with faith and love. And so he was no longer what he once was. He was changed. Those things he could say he was formally but no longer. 
Friends, Jesus saves by his grace. And everyone he saves by his grace, he transforms by that same grace. So that we are no longer what we once were, either. As Pastor John Piper puts it, at the moment of salvation, the Spirit of God creates something new. He takes out of us the heart of stone that rebels against God, and he puts into us a new heart which trusts God and follows his ways. Or to put it another way, the Holy Spirit establishes establishes himself as the new ruling principle of our life. Christian, when when you are saved, you are no longer enslaved by your sin. You are freed from your bondage to sin. You are freed to follow Christ. You have a new Lord. You have been given a new desire, a holy and righteous desire to follow the Lord. Therefore, as one born again by the Spirit of God, you can now walk by the Spirit and not the flesh. That is what it means to have Jesus as Lord. To no longer walk by the flesh, but in the power of the Spirit. And when you walk in the power of the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. A Christian, to walk in the Spirit, you walk in the Spirit as you humble yourself and admit that you need the Spirit's help to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We need the Spirit's help each and every day, each and every hour, each and every minute, each and every second. And so you seek the help of the Spirit. You humble yourself and say that I do not have the strength to do it alone. And you pray and ask for God's strength to walk in the power of the Spirit. Friends, you walk in the power of the Spirit as you continually place your faith in Jesus That you continually believe that he is the only one who can save you. That you believe that he is the one who has won victory over sin. And therefore, you can have victory over your sin in him. You believe that he will give you continual grace and strength to fight your sin if you will just turn to him and plead for it. Brothers and sisters or friends, if you feel powerless to fight your sin... If you have no idea how to get yourself out of sin, it means one of two things most likely. You either just do not know the Lord. You do not have the power of the Spirit at work in you. And you need to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. Or it means that you're trying to fight this battle in your own strength and you have not turned to the Lord. It does not mean the first time you go to the Lord and pray and ask for help to fight sin that it's just going to magically be gone. You may fight that same sin for your whole life. But the battle will get easier the more you turn to the Lord. You'll see victory over that sin more and more. You'll say no to temptation more and more. You'll find yourself desiring more and more to live in righteousness. It will bring you more and greater pleasure. Brothers and sisters, repentance is not a one-time thing in the Christian life. Repentance is not just something that God calls you to at the moment of salvation and then it plays no part in the Christian life from then forward. No, repentance is to be a way of life for the Christian. Yes, God forgives all of our sins, past, present, and future, at the moment of salvation. If you are a Christian, all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. And yet, we still battle our flesh. We still battle against the sin that remains within us. But the way to find victory is not to ignore that sin. It is to admit that you are still a sinner 
and that you still need Jesus' grace. We are to live by faith and not by sight. And we have to repent of our sins, to seek to make them right, to restore our fellowship with the Lord that gets damaged by our sin. We're to seek to walk by the Spirit continually, to put off our remaining sin and to put on righteousness. That is the pattern of the Christian life. Repent and put off, seek the Lord and put on. We're called to continually respond to Jesus in obedient faith. But friends, we, as John Newton once famously said, the Christian John Newton, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, those words should sound familiar to you. I am not what I ought to be. I'm still a sinner. I'm not what I want to be. I don't have the holiness that I desire. I am not what I hope to be in another world, which is going to be perfectly free from sin when Jesus returns and calls us home. But still, I am not what I used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Praise be to God. Let's pray.